Chevy Equinox with forward collision alert, automatic emergency braking, and available all-wheel drive. It's my ultimate mobile device. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com to schedule a test drive. Chevy Equinox. It's your choice. Own it. Monkey Time entered the Hot 100 chart. First time Major Lance had a national chart record on any chart. In the follow-up, Hey Little Girl, I think that had the best backbeat in popular music, but it was the song after that. It was his only number one. Mm, to the sixth power. Mm-mm, yes, indeed, Major Lance, Chicago's own OK Records. We are talking about uh, the sorry state of American infrastructure. And as, as I say, if, uh, if that doesn't uh, ring a familiar bell to you, then you haven't really thought about it, because I think every one of us is impacted every day by that. And when I was mentioning this to producer Jasmine, she said, oh, I got just the guest for you, Dr. Joseph Schofer. He is host of the long-running podcast, theinfrastructureshow.com, and you can access it online just by that, theinfrastructureshow.com. And he's a civil engineer, as I was saying, specializing in transportation, been at Northwestern for 50 years, got his undergrad at Yale. So this is no slouch, and I know he has some answers. So, Dr. Schofer, thanks for joining us. I'm very happy to, to, to join you, and I can't imagine that anybody wouldn't jump up and down with excitement to talk about infrastructure. See, I feel the exact same way. But, of, of course, when, when I was a kid, it was right when Eisenhower was announcing that he was going to do the interstate system and the construction was starting in 56. And about that time, I said, when I get my driver's license, that's going to be my hobby. I'm going to drive the U.S. interstate system. And I made good on that. And I used to say, I'll drive every inch of it, because, of course, that at that point in time, there weren't all that many inches. And I used to joke. I, I've completed the interstate system, which is more than the federal government has done. And I had a That's lot right. They haven't completed no, it yet. No, exactly. Uh, it's still on the list. Right. And, and, of course, I know that they weren't set in stone, but I was very comforted by the quote-unquote rules. I liked the fact that the numbering was sequential. I, I always knew exactly where I was. Now they're out of order, and this drives me crazy. They're building I-11 right now that is east of I-15. This is just wrong, 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 wrong. But you can't go back and renumber them, and that, that creates a problem. But mostly the odds and evens make sense, mostly, except in Chicago where they don't make sense. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and they do. And of course, they, uh, they uh, inversely mirror the U.S. highway system and all that. But 
I did this actually through like the mid-90s. I continued, if there was an open loop or an open spur, I was going to go drive it. I had a protest route, I-19, because they numbered in metrics. I didn't like that, and all those kind of things. But I'd say around 2000, I took a trip again, and I was horrified at the trees. Now, the beauty of the interstate system used to be that you could see for miles. You could see that Stuckey's 30 miles off the road. Now, all you see is trees. Was that intentional, or did they just grow up spontaneously, and why? They grew grew up spontaneously, but the the, the, uh, interstate system is largely protected from billboards and so when you take away the billboards you've got trees and farms now that's the beauty in a sense of driving the interstate yes you've got plenty of time to see all that stuff right right yes ladybird i uh i will always regret her decision i miss all my burma shave signs and everything else well yeah you can get that probably on the internet or on on your your internet radio but um, i grew up with highway design engineers and my recollection is they were all very sensitive to environmental design and and aesthetics um they weren't much interested in in bulldozing houses at, at that point except in in the cities and that's really quite a different story but there was a lot of environmental sensitivity and care for what you see when you drive the interstate system particularly in rural areas there was also a lot of attention to just traffic. I, I love the size of the lanes. I love the big medians and the nice wide shoulders. And all the exits were on the right. And today, uh, the, the lanes are narrower. The median's gone. They, they put up a fence or whatever, and they exit from the left. Uh, I always thought that that would be loss of funding, but apparently that's all okay now. Well, we've relaxed a lot of the design rules uh, in order to do more things with the resources that, that we have. So you do have some left, left-hand left on and off ramp. Chicago is famous for that. Yes. Well, I think that Chicago was the first on the Eisenhower Expressway, and there was a lot of research done on, on the safety characteristics of it. And I don't think the safety characteristics are, are, are very good. Uh, at, at, at this point. But the lane widths are the same. The bridge uh, clearances are, are the same. So we've been able to maintain that. The philosophy of design for the interst- interstate system at the beginning was consistency, that you ought to be able to get on in Boston and drive to Los Angeles, and the design standards ought to be consistent. They ought to be the same across the nation. Yeah, exactly. And uh, sadly, not so much the case anymore. But but the other thing, I used to do a show that a lot of truckers listen to, and when I found out the kind of road taxes these people were paying, I thought to myself, you know, with that much in tax money, these roads should be heated and lit. And I, I wonder why it is that we don't have better infrastructure on the roads than we do. Well, one of the reasons is that the highway system is largely funded with user fees, that is, motor fuel taxes. Uh, and motor fuel taxes, for example, at the national level, have been uh, frozen at the 1993 level. So that's 27 years uh, that the taxes haven't gone up. So what's happened in 27 years? Well, vehicles have become much more efficient. So when I first started driving, if you got 10 or 12 miles to the gallon, you were doing really well. And now if you get 30 miles to the gallon, you don't have a very efficient car. So cars are are driving far farther for less gas. So the driver is paying less 
per mile to drive. The cost of the highway system, of maintaining the highway system over the last 30 years has gone up by a factor of at least a factor of two. So the revenues, there's a shortfall of revenues, uh, and so that's, so that's problem number one. And you, you can make the case for trucks really in the other direction, which is given the damage that trucks do to bridges and pavements, that they, they ought to pay more. They ought to be, pay substantially more than motor vehicles and probably more than what they're paying now. So we, there's a, a money shortfall, and there's also not a very good um, decision ethos in terms of how we spend the money. So it's very tempting uh, from a political standpoint to build a new facility where, whereas taking that money and improving existing facilities would probably be more productive. But there isn't a ribbon cutting with repaving a, a, an interstate highway system or rebuilding a, a bridge on a state highway system. So there's a sort of a bias in the way we spend funds. That's an interesting point. I know thinking back on it, it used to be that the interstates I drove, they were cement. Now they're asphalt. And, you know, the state of the roads is nowhere near. And of course, years take take a toll, too. I understand that. But is nowhere near what it was. It was initially. When did it switch from cement to asphalt? Well, first of all, you can't you don't get credit for cement. They're concrete. It's a different. It's a different material. It's a stronger material. It's a rigid material. And typically, an asphalt overlay is put down uh, to give you a smoother ride, a better ride, and it doesn't last as long as as, as concrete. So it needs to be restored and, and replaced. And uh, the constant pounding of heavy vehicles, particularly heavy trucks. Um, causes the, the pavement to deteriorate so that on periodically you really need to replace the pavement down to sub-base. That is to rip everything up and, and start again. So that's maybe a 50-year cycle. Uh, if you're going to make the system work, you've got to stay on that cycle. And if you don't do that, then, you, then the pavement deteriorates, your ride quality goes down, your operating costs go up. Well, since this started, uh, pavement started being laid in 1956, did they stick to that 50-year cycle in 2006? In some places, but not every place. So states have a lot to say about this. Remember, the interstate highway system is not owned by the federal government. Right. It's owned by the states. The federal government uh, put in 90% of the cost for original construction, and they provide some grant money for uh, maintenance, but the maintenance responsibility lies with the states. So the states have to come up with their share, and about a little less than half the states haven't raised their gas taxes in the last 20 years. So they're all they're struggling with financial shortfalls. So if you look at Illinois, so Illinois raised the gas tax uh, last year, I think. Uh, the federal highway, uh, the federal gas tax is 18.4 cents a gallon. Uh, for uh, regular gasoline, diesel uh, taxes are, are higher. The Illinois uh, current Illinois taxes brings that up to 48 cents a, a gallon, maybe close to 50 cents a gallon. If you have a car that's getting 30 miles to the gallon, you're paying one and a half cents per mile uh, to use the highway system, which is a pretty low price given. Uh, the, the, the service you, you get out of that. Uh, so, so I, the motorist is, it tends to be paying less than, than fair share. And what happens is if, if 
there isn't enough money in in this motor fuel uh, tax fund, which is in almost every state a set aside fund, a trust fund. What uh, who was it? Al Gore used to call a lockbox. So the money can't be used for anything other than surface transportation. If there's, if there's a state shortfall and there's been a substantial federal shortfall, you take the money out of general revenue. And the sad part about that is the general revenues could be used for schools or hospitals or housing or or, or whatever. Uh, rather than asking the road user to pay what it, what might be a, a, a fair share, so there's a tendency on, on in the political process um, to be afraid to vote for a, a gas tax hike, but they're not afraid to allocate money out of general revenues to continue to to maintain the highway system, and it isn't as obvious that they're not using that money for other things that may be really important to society. Yeah, the political aspect is uh, undeniably a major factor. When I look at, for instance, mandatory insurance, and I look at what the minimum rates are, uh, it wouldn't repair a car today, but no politician is going to uh, go ahead and campaign on the idea that I'm going to raise the insurance minimums, because, of course, it raises the premiums. But so we want... No, that's certainly true, but the, the political evidence in the last 20 years has been that uh, state legislators who have voted to increase the motor fuel taxes have, by and large, not have a, had a problem to, in getting reelected. So, this, I think the fear is larger than the reality. And particularly if, you, if we've done surveys of people that, at the national scale who support the idea of a gas tax that's committed to maintaining and improving the highway system, but uh, the members of the Congress seem to be deaf to, to that message, and they're not willing to do it. Well, I think see, nobody's willing to be the first to say, right. um, I support the, the gas tax, let's vote for it. Well, and of course, ultimately, if no money is thrown at this from some direction, this is going to deteriorate to a point where it's downright dangerous. I mean, we've seen that occasionally. Yeah, well, and it has already. We've seen a bridge collapse here and there, and it's always a, a shock to uh, to people and makes major news. But to engineers, it's uh, it's somewhat expected, given, given the particulars. Now, the other route would be to, uh, and California's done a lot of this, toll roads. Uh, all right, we're going to go ahead and uh, and build this as a toll road, as opposed to, say, a Kentucky that tolled everything initially, and when they finally got them built, they removed the tolls. But as far as these permatoll roads, uh, is there going to be more of that? The, the, the strong tend at the na- t- tendency at the, at the national level is for more toll roads. And the, the simple reason is it's a way to build, to pay for the roads. It's a guaranteed way to, to do it. It, there's an element of fairness in it, in that if you use the road, you pay for it. If you don't use the road, you don't pay for it. It works better. It's more equitable in places where you have a parallel route, an alternative route that you can follow that's a, a free route. So drivers, some drivers mm-hmm. will, will choose that. And some will choose the toll road because presumably it's better, it's faster in most cases. Suburban Chicago is, is, is an example of that. We've let the Illinois um, State Toll Highway Authority uh, take responsibility for building the the major limited access uh, roadways in the suburbs. So you're really very dependent uh, on toll roads there, more so than almost any other place in 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 the in the nation. The downside of toll roads is that there's some people who can't afford it, um, and we don't really don't do anything to. Uh, to to support them, and there are things we can do, but we have we've never implemented a policy that would uh, protect people who uh, who can't afford to pay for the toll roads. 
Well, the other downside, of course, is you lose a certain amount of privacy and anonymity. And uh, the famous cases like uh, there was a divorce case that was actually fought successfully based upon the uh, New Jersey Turnpike and what exits the guy got off and things like yeah, that. There are cases like that, but I would submit to you that if you have close at hand um, a smartphone, you're your privacy is long gone. You know, I agree with that. And of course, I don't. But uh, <laughs> but most people, it is it is fairly ubiquitous. Uh, you, you can't even going online anywhere they want. They want your phone number. And of course, I, I'd give my phone number, but my landline will not take texts. But uh, obviously, it's going in that direction. And you're right. People have seemed to abandon a concern for uh, uh, for that. Uh, the roads, of course, so, are just... And landlines are going away. I mean, uh, I, I'm talking to from my house and I have I, I don't have a landline I have what looks like a landline but it's connected to a little box and what that little box is is, 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 is a fixed cell phone and why do they do that because the telephone service provider figured out that it was way cheaper for them to do that than to maintain the lines and so they gave me a much better deal to, oh, to really to price me out of uh, a landline and and yes, do I lose some privacy? Absolutely, no well, question. Well, but you're not mobile with it. But you're right. VoIP is the way it's going, and I know a lot of the phone companies have tried to petition the public utilities commissions in various states to say let us drop landlines. As far as I know, no state has said yeah you can abandon it completely. But we've abandoned ISDN, and you're right. A lot of people who think they have landlines don't, and that was discovered in Philadelphia a few years ago. When uh, when it came out that Verizon was in fact uh, a- after the last inch to the house connecting people to VoIP, so it, it is yeah. it is so different technology. It's another infrastructure issue. They don't it's, well, it's expensive and they don't want to own the infrastructure. Well, right. so they get rid of the wires. Absolutely. And now we're going to get to the heart of the infrastructure that concerns me most, broadband in America. I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Schofer. And in fact, you can check out the infrastructureshow.com and check out this podcast. And better yet, you can give me a call. It would be helpful if I gave out the number. 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. Chicago's own The Magnificence, Don't Leave Me, 1958 VJ. No, it didn't chart, of course not. 
Named for the magnificent Montague, their big hit, of course, Up on a Mountain. But Don't Leave Me, which came out a couple years later, was, I thought, just terrific Chicago doo-wop. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. You can join us at 888-876-5593. Next hour, we've got open lines all hour. But right now, we are talking with Dr. Joseph Schofer, And he's a professor of civil and environmental engineering and associate dean of the McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern. And he's got a great podcast, which you should absolutely check out if this interests you even one whit. And that's the infrastructureshow.com. And oh, it should, because infrastructure impacts you in pretty much every facet of your life. And, you know, we've been laughing about uh, comedians who say that uh, back at the 1964 World's Fair, we were told we'd have flying cars by 2020. Now we're learning how to wash our hands. And uh, to a degree, we, we didn't get nearly as far as we thought we, uh, we would, did we, Dr. Schofer? We didn't. And I've done some historical research on flying cars, and I can take flying cars back to the days of Glenn Curtis, who nobody alive now remembers, but this was in the 1910s and 1920s, and there have been dozens of attempts and nothing has worked out. But I don't think you're more than five years away from seeing some kind of a, of a flying transportation vehicle that's designed for, for, for short trips. I don't particularly think it's a grand idea, but people are working very hard and very competitively uh, to do that. And it's possible that the technology uh, to make it work is, is close at hand. And I think a big part of that is somehow to keep the driver away from the controls and automate it uh, to make sure that these vehicles don't run into each other. But I think it's going to happen. Wow. Now, what about maglev? Well, maglev is a ground technology. It's, it, it has the capability to move a, a, a ground vehicle at very high speed, so, and it's very expensive. So this would be for a, a, a train or something that we would call a train. Um, it's moved along by, by uh, uh, magnetism, and it's levitated by magnet, magnetism. That is, it, it's lifted off the rail so that the friction between the vehicle and the, and the guideway goes essentially to zero, so it takes much less energy to move it. There are a few examples around the world. Uh, Will it happen here? I know people are talking about maglev for rail uh, here in the United States. There's a lot of interesting technology ideas uh, advancing passenger rail. Um, personally, I'm not very optimistic about it for a variety of reasons, and and, and a big part of that is that uh, the airline industry at least used to have a very strong um, uh, dominance in, in the marketplace, and they're not going to be easily displaced. No, they're not. And, of course, cost is something I never factored. But, you know, give me a Chicago winner. If there's not enough salt on the roads, I'm yelling, give me Magla. <laughs> so I guess... Uh, well, you can do that, but we also have the CTA, and that's going to carry you. Yeah. Uh, CTA and Metra will, yeah. will take care of a lot of people uh, in the winter. And, and that's a reason to look at what's happening to mass transit now where... They've lost, the different properties have lost 70, 80, 90% of their market. And there's an important financial question um, as to whether or not they'll be able to survive. Yeah. And there's an important health question as to whether or not people will be willing to ride them. That that absolutely truer today. You know, if this were a year ago, I'd say, what health issue? But you're 100% right about that. Before I get into broadband, James in Chicago wants to get in on the act. So welcome to WGN Radio, James. Hello. Okay, you have a great show. 
a- anyway, okay, about when you mentioned about uh, uh, about uh, uh, landlines, I'm I'm like okay, my, I inherited my parents' landlines, uh, and and I'm considered a lot more reliable than my cell phone. Yeah, uh, uh, and so I just I said. What, okay, why should I give up my, uh, and another thing, I think this was a year ago, maybe two years ago, probably AT&T here in Illinois tried to pretty much, uh, tried to get it out of, they said, why should we have to be, continue to maintain landlines? Yeah. They tried to go to the legislature and do that. They didn't succeed, but uh, they, they, who's to say they won't keep trying, especially as the older generation uh, passes on and the younger ones think they don't need it and they think all they got to do is their flip to their, phone, their cell phone. I'm like, okay, the more I see cell phones, uh, this particular cell phone I'm using, okay, uh, since it's a lot easier sometimes to contact things, then uh, uh, I, I, okay, I have had two biases here. So I'm like thinking, why would I want, okay, want to give up my regular, rent, give up the landline? No thanks. I'll 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 keep I'll keep the landline to to basically pass from this earth. All right, James. Thank you for weighing in and thank you for calling. You have a nice day. You too. Bye. And of course, behind James's comments is is the infrastructure, and uh, you know when we talk about uh, telephones, whether it's cellular or more important, going to VoIP, uh, we're talking about needing great broadband infrastructure. And at this point, America overall, we don't have it. We really don't, and there isn't a public policy that ensures that that we have it, and yet the society and technology have changed so substantially that for a lot of functions of daily life, and certainly for functions of business, we're absolutely dependent uh, on broadband capacity. So when when we sent children home from school because of COVID-19, there were substantial numbers of children that that lived in households where they didn't have and still don't have uh, strong broadband capacity. It really cuts them out of the out of the educational pro- process. If you turn that around and say, "Well, if everybody really has high quality uh, broadband uh, capacity, then the cost of uh, the intellectual cost of staying at home is substantially reduced. It isn't back to to, to zero, but it's, it makes things much better." Absolutely. And I was hoping if there was a silver lining in this pandemic that it would really highlight the sorry state of broadband in America. And so far, you're seeing school districts that are, you know, putting out hot spots and doing things cellularly where, where, you know, things are pretty bad in rural areas. But I haven't yet been hearing a real hue and cry about you know, we just don't have acceptable broadband. And to me, one of the worst things is people will, and of course, due to the advertisements, they'll, they'll crow about their, their downstream. Uh, well, you know, I got a gigabit connection. I say, yeah, and you got 10 megs up. And the, the asymmetrical nature of it in most places. And then you have the FCC that finally went from 4 to 25 megs calling that broadband. And uh, that's, that's on the downstream. And it's just sickening to me. 
to see where we are compared to what used to be behind the Iron Curtain and what Poland and Romania have because they had to build it out from scratch. We're, we're not moving along in this direction. Yeah, well, one of the advantages that they had was that they could build from scratch. Yes. And we had an existing infrastructure yes. that was reasonably strong and we weren't uh, willing or, or, or able to, to walk away from that. So if you look at countries in Africa, Yes. Uh, the cell phone is compl- it really completely dominates the market because they never had the infrastructure for 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 wired phones, and, and they had to make that work. Now, it's I think access to cell phones is on the one hand essential. Uh, cell phones and broadband is, is, are essential, and on, at, at the same time, they're certainly not equitably distributed. So, what I I do know uh, from uh, people in my family is that, that school districts. Uh, in, in many cities around the country, ended up having to uh, purchase and give laptop computers yeah. to kids who didn't have them in their house. And then they didn't work because the broadband wasn't there. Absolutely. And that's why we've seen, especially in rural areas, them doing partnerships where they're creating hotspots and they're, you know, they're handing that out to, uh, to people. But you look at rural America, and for years, the demise of the small town is well known. And what really drives me crazy is when you'll see the 20-year plans from these little burgs that no one can find on a map, the word broadband isn't even in there. And without that technology, these places are truly going to die. Well, there's, I've heard some stories uh, about towns that have, have pulled their resources to build their own network, and the private companies have come in and, and, and uh, bought lobbyists to pay for legislation to block that because the, here the, the municipality was competing with the, with the private sector, but the private sector wouldn't in response say, but we will build it. They said, no, we won't build it, but we won't let you build it either. So there's something wrong in the regulatory system there that prevents people from, uh, if if you will, taking care of themselves when they have a problem like that. Absolutely. And uh, I'll tell you how broadband crazy I am. When Chattanooga became the gig city, I was living in Utah at the time. I said, oh, really? I can get a gig symmetrical for 250 bucks a month? I'm moving. And I did. I moved to Chattanooga and got EPB. And I lived through the wars. And you're right. Uh, EPB, for people who don't know, is the power company. It's owned by the city of Chattanooga. And because it was all a smart grid that they had done fiber to the house, to every house, they said, hey, you know, we can provide you broadband. And boy, did they. World class. And so everybody, Comcast, Charter, AT&T, Verizon, you name it, uh, came down like a ton of wet goats. And it went to court. And ultimately, what was decided was EPB could offer this where they had a power footprint, but they couldn't offer it an inch further than their power, power footprint. Now, the problem with that is some of the nicer sections like Nickajack Dam were charter uh, franchises and charter hadn't built them. And so what we're basically saying is exactly what you just pointed out. No, we, the private sector, won't build it, but we'll stop you from building it, too. And yeah. You know, we we have now a senator from from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, who was, uh, I I think, a state rep when I was there. And uh, she literally was the one spearheading, oh, you have to allow it to be the private sector. Well, something like this, I don't think we can afford to rely on what the private sector wants to give you. I think you need a broader view of what free market is, and free market is if the private sector won't do it and, and the and local government is willing to do it, then let them do it. Get yes. out of the way. Yes. And so these fights are going on, and I look at this, 
And again, with the pandemic, it's highlighting it for everybody. But I don't see where in the short term, unless there's some type of development that I don't know about, that we're going to resolve this in America. I don't know how we're going to resolve it, but I think there may be some lessons in history because there was a program during the Depression, I believe, um, called Rural Electrification, Yep. where the network service to be provided was electricity. And that was um, subsidized by the government. People in rural areas got a a bare-bones connection, but they got a connection to to the electric grid, which otherwise they wouldn't have had because the the private utilities could look at that and say there are too few people out here. There are not enough rate payers to make it worthwhile for us. Absolutely. And so this is sort of a typical infrastructure problem that is to get into the business, to build the network system, to build the highway system, or to build, the, um, if you will, the, the fiber network. You either need a, a big market or, or it isn't going to go. Somebody's got to take, some entity has to take the risk. And that's really what happened with the interstate highway system in, in, in the 50s. The, the federal government, the Congress, increased the motor fuel tax set by a, a tiny amount, by one and a half cents a gallon or something like that. They set that money aside and said, okay, that's the nest egg, and we're going to build this system uh, from that. If you had waited until the business developed, the traffic volume had developed um, to, to justify that, you never would have, have had the system. Oh, absolutely. And that was quite the fight, too. I remember that because, of course, here was uh, Eisenhower, a Republican. He had a Democrat Congress at the time, and that was that was not easy getting that through, but ultimately, of course, they did. And and you look at a lot of the public work works projects, like the FDR stuff, like the uh, Rural Electrification Act you mentioned. Uh, th- they worked, and uh, you know things of this nature. Uh, and and but I'm as libertarian as the next guy in reality. But there are certain things that, in order to get this advanced, it's not in the private sector's best interest to wire America. And we look at the coming 5G. If it does, most of it's L600 now. But uh, and I can see that possibly in highly dense population centers. But they're not going to bring that to a town that's 50 miles away from the nearest population. It doesn't make no, sense. No, too expensive. Of course, right. of course. And so, uh, you know, all the things that are coming further are dividing. And uh, I mentioned this when I had a realtor on the, on the air with me a few weeks ago at WGN. And what's interesting to me today, especially with the pandemic, is that when I'm looking at a property, I want to know exactly what is that broadband connection. You know, hell, if it's, if it's God forbid, cable modem, I want it down to the node. You know, I want to know everything about it. And you talk to a realtor about this, and they look at you like you're nuts. Uh, there, There's absolutely no qualified information to people about what's available. No, it's interesting because uh, you, you wouldn't you'd expect, if you ask the question, does it have an electric a connection to the electric grid, they would say, of course, they would either know it or make it up. But this is an essential service that people don't yet know about. It's not on the books uh, in, in the selling market. Right. Right. And there have been horror stories, as I'm sure you know about more than I do, probably, about people who bought expensive homes only to find out that they weren't connected to anything. And uh, trying to get connected turned out to be an absolute nightmare, not only in terms of dollars. It is is a nightmare. It's it's definitely a a problem. And there is... I'm, I'm sure you know that there there are places in the big city of Chicago where the quality of broadband uh, connection is very poor, yes. and those 
students during COVID-19 are particularly disadvantaged. So this is, uh, it's like water and sewer, really. Everybody needs to be connected. Well, right. And and absolutely there are. And part of that, of course, is because there's copper there that they just rely on that's ancient. And they figure, well, anybody in the zip code, they're not going to pay more for uh, extra extra speed. So, boy, we're not going to give it to them. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I laugh these days with VoIP phones and such. Uh, phones are worth the price we pay for them. But to a degree, one thing that landlines had that today's phones don't is they had full duplex. And now with, with half duplex, it, it it drives me crazy where a lot of the quality has has dropped. And that that's sort of survivable when you've got a fairly good infrastructure behind you. But when you're in the areas you're talking about that are marginal, this will kill you. Yeah, it really messes up a conversation. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an unnatural conversation. Right. That's right. true. Right, and uh, it may it may be cost effective, but it's not uh, uh, not in terms of uh, quality of of life even there anymore. And what I what I find is that today, just like the legislatures in the rural communities, most people are not savvy enough to even demand better than they've got. And I wonder if there will ever be a public demand that will will force this issue. Well, it, it depends. It depends on the kind of people. For example, if you look at large farms uh, in, in the Midwest, they're very dependent on automation and therefore very dependent on Internet connections. Um, they're you know, feed, feeding data from a tractor to um, a, 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 a central uh, server and, and using that to manage a farm. So the need is, is there, or at least it's there in, in, in some places. It's a matter of responding. So what do you think about the, the fact that um, SpaceX and a few other companies are throwing up literally hundreds of satellites, small satellites, in the, in the plan to distribute broadband service around the world that's dependent on satellites. Yeah, like, like a kind of uber-fixed wireless. Uh, I, w- I want to see it first. You know, the biggest problem I have, even with close satellites, is you're going to have a certain latency issue, and I want to see what is my ping time. That's my first question. Well, that's a good question, and you get used to uh, evidence that I've seen says when you click uh, the <laughs> mouse on your computer, uh, the average person's willing to wait three seconds to get a response, what? and then they go somewhere else. So, um, yeah, yeah, quick, <laughs> uh, quick, uh, uh, short latency is is, is really important. But the number of satellites is extraordinary; yeah, it, it is. literally is in the thousands. Yes, it is. Uh, there's not enough up there to 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 know how this is going to function, but presumably the, the vendors do know something about how it's going to function. We'll, we'll be finding out. We're talking to Dr. Schofer, and you can join us. Fascinating conversation as far as I'm concerned, and hopefully it has told you that, yes, infrastructure affects you every day, almost, I'd argue, every minute of your life. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. <laughs>
11-year-old. That's because she's an 11-year-old. That's Faith Taylor and the Sweet Teens. I Love You, Darling, 1959. She was a Chicago native, singing since the age of three, recording by the age of nine on Federal, no less. And by 11, she recorded I Love You, Darling for the Bee and Baby label. And, uh, yeah, it sounds like it was recorded in a closet, and their studio was pretty close to that, actually. Narvel Eatman and his wife, B started that mostly blues label in 59. But Faith Taylor had just, I thought it was a great little record. I love you, darling, Chicago as it gets. I'm Raleigh James, and I am talking with Dr. Joseph Schofer, professor of civil and engineering, in, uh, civil and, yes, environmental engineering at Northwestern, as he has been for 50 years. Wow. And uh, the the prospect of uh, low Orbit satellites giving us our broadband, a uh, fixed wireless of sorts. You know, you're saying a three-second pin time, uh, ping time, Doctor Schofer, and uh, or uh, you know, lag. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm passing out at that. But then I think to myself, well, then VOIP is never going to work. It's a problem. These people get used to very high, very quick responses. I think they we get used to that in life. It's not just the computer. Uh, I, I have my experience is working with people who send an email and they five minutes later if they don't get a response yes. they say what's wrong what's going on here yes. uh, we're, we're all impatient we're pressed, pressed for time and we want to move on and I think that uh, the the electronic media and, and digital media have, have encouraged us to, to to do that you know I really would like I'd like to take you back to what I think is kind of a fundamental problem with with infrastructure in general and and that is, that we started out this conversation talking about the sorry state of U.S. infrastructure, but I, the position I would take is is that infrastructure in the United States works really well for most people, and we it, it puts us in a situation where it's really hard to get governments to spend money for maintenance and for upkeep because everything is going well until it's not going well, and then we have a crisis and we have to respond to a crisis and. The analog I would give you is it's really very sensible to have somebody look over your heating or cooling system once a year so that when you have a heat wave, your air conditioning doesn't go out unexpectedly, and then everybody's looking for, for, for service. Then there's a crisis. Getting political decision makers to spend for the future, to make an investment for the future, can be really difficult. And it's difficult because it's hard for them to go back to voters and say, we need the money for this because it's something that we're building for our future and for our children's future. Just brilliant. Theinfrastructureshow.com. I can't wait to listen to some of the podcasts. I'm going to be checking that out. And thank you for spending an hour with us. I'm very happy to have spent the hour with us. Most interesting. Thank you. All right. So, Dr. Joseph L. Schofer, and you can check him out. And like I say, start with theinfrastructureshow.com.